Imagine Equip podcast. This is a resource designed to help form substantive disciples for the local church. My name is Nicole Kyle. I work here at High Point. I am joined by Nick Gibson, who also works here. And um, we're here to do a podcast. Yeah, Nicole's a little punchy today. I'm a little punchy today. That's okay. I I am channeling what I say to my four-year-old all the time, that sometimes we just have to choose to change our attitude. And that when he's ready, he can come out and change his attitude. Sometimes you have appointments where you can't take the necessary time <laughs> to just change your attitude. But I can do I by I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I have the Spirit in me, and He can fill me with joy. That's right. And all the fruits of the Spirit, including patience and kindness and forbearance. All right, that already is helpful. That's right. Okay. That's like they got a whole podcast just there. Just right there. Sometimes when I really am in a hard situation that I just pray through that passage in Galatians and I think of every one of those fruits of the spirit and I just try to think, what does that mean for that applied to that situation? That may be my most common way that I pray and ask God for help. I need that. That ain't bad. All right. So one of the things we do every week, most weeks when Nick is preaching is called a clarity check. Uh, and the purpose of that is to, he goes through the outline of a sermon as much as he has done at that point to make sure that it's clear. And he does that with a couple of us on staff, myself and John and sometimes others. And, um, also it's, I mean, it's helpful for you to be able to talk it through in different settings and at different paces and. Yeah, and it, I like ask like, you guys if you have like illustrations or jokes or stuff that right. would go along with points and things right. like that. Right, yeah. and it's it's helpful when you get extra time to just chew on this idea, talk mm-hmm. through it more. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a little bit what we're going to do with this. This sermon will have, by the time you're listening to this, he will have preached already, but you yeah. haven't yet. We're from the future yeah. and the past. This is one of the only sermons every year. Like the, the Sunday prece- immediately preceding MLK, Martin Luther King Day, is one where I do like a topical sermon, usually on some something related to justice. Right. And it's one of the only times in the entire year true. I will do a topical sermon. Mm-hmm. And so um, I think there's a lot more danger to pastors preaching topical sermons. Right. Just agenda-wise and so on. Yeah. And so... Um, the thing that's hard about topical sermons is that like, particularly for you, you mm-hmm. like to be able to think uh, like just in completeness about mm-hmm. an idea and you can never do that topically mm-hmm. about a sermon. And so there's yeah. just going to be plenty in this that you won't be able to get to. And so you can think of this as yeah. a way to go through your sermon and, and it's, like, it's like a cutting room floor episode before it even happens. Right. Yeah. yeah. And to expand on some of these things. So, um, so that's what we're going to do. All right, go ahead. What? You want me to just... <laughs> About justice. About justice, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, okay, so... I don't so, have a question for you. All right, so kind of the way I'm going to jump into this, I think, and I know some people are going to hate this, is when I have conversations with people about justice, inside the church, outside the church, inside the church of other ethnicities, outside the church of other ethnicities, when I listen to things in media stuff, wherever I see it, when people say justice, they mean politics. Mm-hmm. And I hate that. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. But that's what they mean. Yeah. And so I think that one conversation in the church has to be then. Wait, before you even go on, I think you should prove that. Because when you first said that to me before we started recording, I was like, is that really true? But yeah, like once you start to talk about justice, you do have to talk about what it looks like to pursue and achieve justice, which will yeah. end up in a conversation where you're talking about politics. Yeah. What are we to do? Right. And I don't, I don't believe that it has to be that way. I think that people in the West, in America, and in America in particular, have been taught to think that way mm-hmm. over the last yeah. 100 years. Yeah. At least since 1920 and the, the awakening of the progressive, first progressive movement that saw the government as the fundamental change agent right. of right. society. And then um, other, other organizations or structures in society being fundamentally used for that and then in the civil rights movement for good reasons mm-hmm. um that that was not just legislatively but also legally speaking so most of the ways people tried to change injustices in society was by legal challenges and that became very popular um and i think for good reason because a lot of times you couldn't get a majority vote democratically for desegregation for example but the courts could say this is unconstitutional right mm-hmm. so you have basically these two progressivist thrusts that I, when I say progressive, I don't mean that as a pejorative. I mean, the, in ways yes. that we're trying to push for progress, 
um, in terms of like larger social programs and, and legal programs. So well, I think what's happened like over these last decades is people are growing up now and they're, they're just, they just assume because this is how everybody talks. Well, this is like you elect a candidate and then you have a program or a policy and this creates a bureaucracy and this is how we pursue justice. Mm-hmm. And I think that's a terrible way to think about justice, but it is one we have to grapple with as the church because that's how people think. Yeah. Okay. So this brings up something you said you wanted to talk about later and, but I'm just going to jump to it now. So currently everybody wants to talk, anybody who has a platform mm-hmm. wants to speak on particular issues. Yeah. When we, <clears throat> when, um, something you'll hear hap hear a lot would be like, I at least have heard this a lot when an athlete wants to speak out on something, yeah. people will say like, just stick to the sports. Right. I don't want to hear this from you. Right. Um, some people welcome it. Yeah. I think that it is something that we hear in the church sphere. Not all the time, but sometimes people are like, why are we talking about politics? Especially more con- theologically conservative churches. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give that? That isn't exactly what you wanted to talk about later, but I yeah. did think of that. Like, can you give a little bit of context to that? Yeah. So, um, it, from say the 1930s to maybe the 19 mid 1970s, the mainline churches, right? They controlled Christianity in America for. You should say what you mean by mainline. So mainline churches are like the, the old denominational churches: Presbyterian Church, the Methodist Church, the certain Baptist churches, certain congregational churches, and so on. These churches that, that now make up like the United Church of Christ and yeah. the PCUSA and so on. They basically controlled Protestant Christianity in America, and they were like sermons were in the Sunday paper and yeah. right there was a lot of public religion around Christianity. Yeah. And what happened is they moved in a direction as the progressivist movement politically functioned in a direction that pursued something that was referred to as the social gospel, which yes. is this idea that Jesus, the the movement of Jesus as it works through the hearts of people as they get better and better will produce cert, certain kinds of social outcomes. Right. And the gospel got retranslated into a social program. Mm-hmm. Right. And, these churches kind of bit into that lock, stock, and barrel for two reasons. One is because they wanted to see social change. And two is because over the last 200 years previous to that, they had lost their faith in the supernatural nature of the Christian religion. They didn't believe anymore that Jesus had risen from the dead. They didn't believe that the Bible is the word of God written. They didn't believe that Jesus was the son of God in a metaphysical, spiritual sense that he was the uncreated son and so on. So all these spiritual doctrines of Christianity, they had lost their faith in, but they still believed in the betterment of mankind, mm-hmm. that people's lives could be better, that the world could be a better place. They believed all that. Yeah. And spiritually, they still believed in some some more vague notions like the fatherhood of God, the brother and sisterhood of mankind, sure. right? And the perfectibility of people. What happened is, is that the Christian religion essentially became a social platform. Yeah. And um, it to, to quote J. Gresham Machen in his book, Christianity Liberalism, that what, what was called liberalism that is now called progressivism became this notion in which you didn't believe any of the doctrines of Christianity, but all you kept all the words and then you took out the spiritual meanings and you put in new political meanings and you still talked like you used to talk, but you meant something totally different. And it was really a political program. It was the social gospel. Fundamentalism and evangelicalism grew out of fundamentalism mm-hmm. was the rejection of this movement. Yeah. It was, it wasn't fundamental. Fundamentalism didn't start the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Modernism or this, this form of liberalism or progressivism mm-hmm. spiritually started that controversy. When that began to sweep the country, some people were like, wait a second. No, this is wrong. We can't do this. And so they began to say, no, Christianity is a supernatural religion in which we believe in the deity of Christ and the right. Yeah. And so these started to get defended. You got this split in the American church, right? And so out of so as fundamentalism became more anti-intellectual, it became more against entering institutions and sending your kids to public colleges and so on. It mm-hmm. became more insular in that it separated from people who didn't agree with it and so on. Mm-hmm. A group of these quote fundamentalists that is people who believe in the fundamentals were like, wait, this isn't what we mean. And they came out and were called the neo-evangelicals and then ultimately the evangelicals yeah. by the 1970s. Right. And so that group of people, the evangelicals, were basically the people who said, we believe in the social implications of the gospel. Right. We don't believe in the, that the social gospel is the gospel, though. We believe that the gospel of the forgiving supernatural Christ is the gospel. Mm-hmm. And so we want to preach the scriptures. We believe in Jesus Christ. We believe you have to be personally saved. And all of that supernatural religion of 2,000 years of Christ's death and resurrection and that that does have social implications. Mm-hmm. So like, just as right. Paul said, I'm going to go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. And James was like, don't forget the poor. Right. And, and, and Paul's like, of course. 
Right. There are social implications to this free gospel of the grace of the risen Christ I'm preaching. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, the Apostle Paul, the Apostle James, held in, one in each hand the absolute supernatural nature of the gospel of Jesus Christ yeah. and the social implications of that gospel to right. love your neighbor as yourself. Yeah. Um, and what happened was fundamentalism lost that second hand and the mainline churches profoundly lost the first one. Yeah. And Jesus abides with neither, as far as I can tell. Mm-hmm. Um. One is like the the New Testament Pharisees, and the other is like the New Testament Sadducees. Mm-hmm. They're just like opposite errors. Mm-hmm. And evangelicalism has tried to split the difference. And in some ways, what's happening is the old tendrils of fundamentalism mm-hmm. have wrapped themselves into evangelicalism presently, and the old tendrils of liberalism or progressive anti-supernatural religion have wrapped themselves into evangelicalism is now tearing evangelicalism apart in America. Yeah. There was a there was an article in the Atlantic recently, like evangelicalism about evangelicalism being torn apart. And a lot of people were like, yeah, evangelicalism just sucks. And I'm, I'm like, well, really what's happening is it's being torn apart by these two different groups because evangelicals are no longer seem to have the confidence to say both and anymore. Yeah. And that's a terrible thing. Yeah. And part of the reason for that is that worldliness, that is the catechesis or the spiritual teaching of the world is teaching a secularism that is not neutral and is teaching younger people that the fundamental supernatural nature of the Christian gospel is not something you can really, 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 really believe in. Mm -hmm. And so what's really happening is a lot of our younger believers, they just do not believe incredibly deeply that the scriptures are trustworthy, that Jesus has risen from the dead, that you can reconcile us to the father and so on, and that you can pattern your life after that, as opposed to the alternative view. And so, um, the, the sad thing that's led to is when you don't have yourself rooted in belonging to God and his kingdom, Mm -hmm you need a big story. And the problem is, is that statism, the belief that the state is fills your life with meaning, tells you your origin and your destiny and tells you what the proper morality is. It fills all the requirements of worldview and is the present God becomes an object of idolatry. And, and so both for progressivism and certain forms of conservatism, this has been increasingly the case. And the scary thing about this is, is that both sides say the other side is fascist but but what the word fascist comes from the italian word fascist which is a group of sticks tied together and Benito Mussolini said fascism simply means this everything is in the state nothing's outside of the state and at some level both of these fallacies of the wrong kind of nationalistic conservatism and the wrong kind of progressivist globalistic state worship are both conducive to creating a fascist out of human society that everything's inside the state and nothing's outside of it when in fact the what um what christian raw in the anglosphere was no government government must be put in its place it must be shrunk and shrunk and reformed because they were fighting against the the illiberal and unjust actions of monarchies and they were saying the monarchy can't be absolute not if god is and so there has to be this this interactive nature is in in american history or european history is called the investiture controversy does the church have authority or does the state have authority Right. And the idea was, well, what Luther said and the reformers said, they must have different spheres. But if they have different spheres, that means there is a sphere of the church or religion or faith or civic life that the state does not have authority in. And that's fundamentally opposed to the state saying everything is part of the state. But that's what, but everything being part of the state is what people really do mean by implication when they say things like silence is violence. Mm-hmm. Because violence is, by definition, that which is constrained by constrained justice, that is, laws and legal actions. Unconstrained justice is that which you should just know not to do and do as as an action of character, right? So I shouldn't be mean to you as an issue of unconstrained justice. That I can't steal your purse is part of constrained justice, right? And so when you say silence is violence, what you're saying is is your silence should be constrained by law because it's the worst kind of injustice. Hmm. And so you shouldn't have the option under the state in which we live to be silent. You should be forced to be on my side. Does that make sense? And taking an area of unconstrained justice when in, when you should or shouldn't speak or lend your voice to something or advocate for something, and you try to drag those people into your view of constrained justice is fundamentally status tyranny. That's what it, that's how it, you can't escape that dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And so right now we live in a society where Christians are living in a world in which everything is political. Mm-hmm. And... That creates a fundamental problem for us because God has, makes a counterclaim and is claiming that everything is spiritual. And it's the same area of work because 
the state is not doesn't respect that it just doesn't have authority in a number of places. Mm-hmm. And if the people of a democracy don't understand that, they don't understand that the state isn't God. It isn't sovereign and shouldn't be sovereign. Mm-hmm. And even if it's constituted as a democracy, that still doesn't give it the moral right to do whatever it wants, right? Why can't 51% of the people just kill 49% of the people? Because it still isn't right. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? So democracy and voting for something democratically doesn't make it right and therefore doesn't make it just. Democratic mm-hmm. societies can be just as unjust as anybody else and right. have been. I mean, America right. was, a, was a democratic society when we had slaves. Right. Right. So th- this is a problem. And so Christians have yeah. to recognize that God doesn't just judge certain public programs like he's against abortion or something. Like if you look at like the book of Ezekiel carefully, God counterclaims everything, literally everything. And that's why Abraham Kuyper, the Dutch or the, the, Presbyterian, the Prime Minister of the Netherlands back in the 1800s said every square inch of the world is claimed by God and counterclaimed, or claimed by Satan and counterclaimed by Christ. There is no middle ground. Mm-hmm. And um, Michael Matheson Miller, who will speak here later this spring, has said rightly, secularism is not neutral. Yeah. Like the, the idea that if we were all secular-ish and then we kept everything else to ourselves, we'd have a nice neutral, therefore liberal society is false. Secularism has never been neutral. There's never been a version of it popularly believed yeah. That is neutral. A lot of a lot of that is explored in Charles Taylor's work, um, very well. That's one of the reasons why he was one of the great scholars of that kind of stuff of the last century. Mm-hmm. So, it's. I think this gets to you. You're on another podcast. You guys had an episode about like what is essential to the Christian faith, and it's hard yeah. because like ultimately, if everything is spiritual, our belief in the gospel. And our, then its effect on our lives will affect everything. Yeah. And so it's very hard to boil down what is essential. Yeah. What is essential? The answer is you don't know. Yeah. You know? And, and which is also why, like, I think the way that we preach at high point is we, we go through books of the Bible and you're going to cover whatever comes up. Mm -hmm. And if that means that what comes up is speaking about something that seems very political because it probably is, mm-hmm. then that's what we're going to talk about. Yeah. Cause you, you could imagine a society in which all the government did was arrest murderers and rapists, like very, like 10 commandments. Like you've got very, sure. very clear constrained justice. There's a limited straightforward set of laws. They build some roads maybe, and they protect us from outside invaders. And that is it. Right. Mm-hmm. In that world, the church quote, staying out of politics would be reasonably doable. Yeah. Now, you still could have problems in the legal system. We still could be unkind to people who tried to invade us, right? Yeah. There are some things where the church could end up. But like when you have a society which everything's political, which is where we are right now, I mean, it can get a little worse, but it's pretty bad. It's yeah. as bad as it's ever been in American history, except for like maybe the 1930s. Um, then you, the church can't, you can't be like, well, the church shouldn't be political. Well, then you can't talk about literally anything. Mm-hmm. And I think that that, I don't see how any pastor could do that. As I was saying before the podcast to you, like if you look at the way the word of God is preached in the scriptures, preaching about public problems and how they demonstrate people's sinfulness and God's right and willingness to judge them is everywhere, Mm -hmm. right? In the Old Testament and the New Testament. I mean, it's actually surprising how many places Jesus uses as an example of human sin, a commonly practiced thing in the culture in which he lives. Right. And that is, you could, you could call it structural or systemic, mm-hmm. the thing that he's attacking. Talking about, right. You know? So, I don't think, um, like, if you ask the question, like, should the church speak publicly words about justice? Like, A, the gospel is literally a message about justice, <laughs> right. right? Divine justice. Yeah. So, you have to speak that message. And then it's also um, about sin. That is our shared morality, which is justice. That is the unconstrained justice of our society, how we all treat each other. Mm-hmm. So whenever we talk about sin, we are talking about injustices, injustices between people, people in the social sense. Right. And then um, everywhere in the Bible assumes that you cannot have a hierarchy or a structure in public human society in which if the people in it are wicked, it will produce a good. Like one of, one of the the fallacies of modernity is that if you get the system right, if you get the right engineers in charge of things and you get mm-hmm. the right system things will, will function optimally. And that's yeah. not true. That's not true in anything. It, the closest thing to that is the free market, where if, if our transactions are voluntary, 
I'm only going to buy something from you if you produce something that I actually want. Mm -hmm. And so therefore you're constrained to give me something I want and I'm constrained to pay you for it. Right. And so as long as we have laws that make that go, the free market is the closest thing, but the free market still has externalities. You can Mm -hmm. like harm the environment to produce something for me and then I can pay you for it. And if I don't care what you do, the environment or don't know, Mm -hmm. then that externality still happens. You could be polluting the Fox river, for example, and ruin fishing in Wisconsin. Right. So even that it's like, it's just not true. If people in the systems aren't themselves good. Right. Well, then the, you, the system's not going to be good, right? That, I really that's what, wish that could be true. I, I really, know. I really wish you could, like, I love the thought of being able to make order out of chaos and just having a system that is clear enough that it just goes. Yeah. Like, like an engine or something. Yeah. Yeah. But even, even with computers, like it, mm-hmm. every time you talk to somebody and they're like, yeah, have you tried turning it on and off again? And I just think <laughs> you're literally creating a system. It shouldn't have this error. And it right. does. It right. just does yeah and the problem with human beings is whenever you reset the system it's almost always worse it doesn't fix it (laughs) you know like all the times in human like just look at all the revolutions in world history and all the times in which a system was torn down and another one put in its place usually it was 10 times worse and sometimes people say well without the american revolution as edmund burke said the americans fought to keep their way of life not to change it (laughs) so the american revolution was about keeping things as they were not changing not changing them (laughs) which I think was correct. The yeah. revolution that happened about, about that time where life really was turned upside down was the French Revolution, which yeah. you had housewives eating the hearts of their enemies in the streets. It, yeah. it, it, it became utterly deranged. Yeah. So, yeah. And that, one, and that one was all about equity. So like, even though equity is a wonderful thing, if it can be pursued justly, the idea that like, even if you, even if, well, maybe the system's not right, but if we pursue the right things, like the right goods, then it'll be just. No, I mean, you can't get better things than the French Revolution. It was like equality, brotherhood, and equity. Like, you can't get yeah. better ideals than that, right? The problem is, is that the way they pursued those, those ideals in a revolutionary spirit where they dehumanized other people to get what they wanted produced the most dehumanizing thing you can imagine mm-hmm. until this France lost its soul for a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and we've talked about this a lot on this podcast, the idea that there's a way you think things ought to be. Mm-hmm. And then there's the way things are. Right. And like we've talked about that pastorally, that Mm -hmm. like just the number of meetings you have with married couples who are in like dealing with issues or people who've gone through severe childhood trauma, et cetera. Like you, there's a way you think people ought to function, but the, but the reality is you've had done enough of those counseling sessions that you just know how people are going to be. Yeah. And and younger people reject that because they think what we're saying is leave the world the way it is. The status quo is just the way it's going to be. Whatever injustice. They, they think, like if you say, look, there's the way the world is. And they think, what I mean is the context and the way things are being done. The status quo. Mm-hmm. That's not what we mean. There's a difference between the status quo and the teleology. The teleology is the inherent design of the nature yeah. of the things in the world. The status quo is the way things just are right now. And those are not the same thing. No. You can embrace the teleology of the world. The way things are designed to be in their inherent nature and change the status quo mm-hmm. really radically. Yeah. Which is what we would do like in a broken marriage. We were right. like, the reason this is broken is because you're not treating each other according to your design. But we can change the status quo of your marriage, which is you right. fighting and hating each other, if you will embrace your teleology, your purpose, your meaning, your, right? Yeah. And so when we say embracing the world, quote, as it is, instead of the way you ideologically wish it was, right? The, because I, Thomas Sowell talks about this, about how like we treat poor people like abstractions. Yeah. The fundamental nature and how we need to relate to the world is we have to start with what it is inherently. It's design, it's teleology, it's purpose, it's meaning. And then move to the status quo, what is. And then determine as best as we can how we would change what needs to be changed. Relative Even what to we justice. know about. Right. Rather than abstractly and in an irreligious, and divinely uninformed way, create an ideology out of our minds about what is, quote, fair. And then say, that's what must be correct. Mm-hmm. And therefore, we can do anything we want to do. The ends justify the means to make the world of the image in which we imagine it. Mm-hmm. And that way of behaving in the world has produced untold murder, right. horror, right. not re- everything but reform and change for the good. Yeah. And so I think that both on the micro level of like seeking to be changed in Christ ourselves, all the way to the macro level, seeking to change human society. Mm-hmm. If you miss the teleology of people, you start with a what, what philosophers just call a false anthropology. You have a false idea of what a human being is. Mm-hmm. And you cannot proceed from there positively. Mm-hmm. And that's one of the reasons why God argues that 
you ha- why idolatry is the first and damning sin. Mm-hmm. That like if you start by not starting with the lordship of God Himself, that He mm-hmm. is King, and that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, mm-hmm. and that includes having the humility of heart to tremble at His word. That is to receive what He says about Himself, about who He is and what we are, so that we start from a right theology. We know who God is, right? A right creational ideology, what creation is, and a right anthropology, what human beings are. Only by that, by rejecting our our ideological, our ideology is is synonymous to God with ideology with idolatry. Yeah. <laughs> if we will let that go and we will receive from God His truth, then we start with a right anthropology. We know what human beings are, and then we have a chance of getting somewhere that is just. What God says in Ezekiel over and over and over again is, if you will not reject your idolatry, you will then enter into unconstrained injustice that is sin. From there, you will enter into constrained justice, things there should be laws against, and that we have a social obligation to stop, which is injustice, formally. And you will ultimately enforce your injustice because you won't want to give it up because it's your own dishonest gain. And so you will gauge it whatever you need to enforce it, which is violence. Yeah. And so you will get this progression from idolatry to sin to injustice to violence. And there is no human escape of that. And so in, and in order to escape, the only escape is repentance and faith that is rejecting your idolatry. Yeah. And because of that, what that means for us politically is if everything's political, then God steps into the void, this political speaking void, and he's like, no, 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 no. I counterclaim everything. You must start with the rejection of your idolatry. Hmm. And the state always has built into it its own idolatry because the state wishes to perpetuate itself. And it's full of people who want to perpetuate their own stakes in the state. And so the state is a constantly corrupting institution. And so you need an external reforming principle and if so if the state is the god of the society it cannot be reformed how this is off topic yeah but this is a question i have i mean how conscious do you think that is you were saying that the state is full of people who want to perpetuate whatever their platform is or like because i i i I know a lot of people say oh man lifelong politicians like they're just evil people etc blah 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 and i just i that I don't buy that. I'm sure there are examples of that, but how, I also think it is equally um, plausible that it's people captivated by a culture who don't even realize they're captives. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that's the same thing. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think as somebody who's had some power in my job and in my work as a pastor, um, the, the corrupting power of power is incredible. Mm-hmm. Just the self-indulgences, the stuff you feel like you deserve like you've heard the saying what's good for the goose is good for the gander that like your the, the ability to convince yourself that the thing you want to indulge yourself in is really fine for the group of people you're leading so yeah. like if i if i took more vacation days than i have i'll go like well you know what arrested nick is better for high point church sure right like i, I convinced myself of that and there's a hundred ways to do that mm-hmm. you know what i mean and so i mean like uh, Jim Baker is a good example of this. Like he was like one of the guys in the eighties that had the big like TV ministries and like they found him with like his, his like secretary in a hotel room. And like he had convinced himself and her that he deserved to have a tawdry and disgusting affair because he was under so much pressure as a man of God. Yeah. And like, and he, he believed that and she believed that. Right. And only later did she wish she's like, Oh, that was abusive. And right. I can't I mean, believe there, I felt there for were, that. And, there were, um, there was evidence of that same mentality with Robbie Zacharias. Mm-hmm. The same. Yeah. I, I deserve think this because I, of yeah, that. Yeah. Right. With, with Robbie Zacharias, I have a little more compassion for him a little because I think that the intensity of the chronic back pain that he suffered was incredibly painful as opposed to Baker who like he had no chronic condition. Like now I, I don't, I don't excuse Robbie Zacharias. I mean, he should have confessed and been like helped and dealt with. Right. But like in Baker's case, I mean, he just has gotten really powerful. Yeah. And he was worshipped by this woman. She wanted to move in into the ministry. Then she can, you know, like, like there's the the delu- There was no chronic pain involved in that delusion. You don't like as for me as a pastor. If I like fall into something, it wasn't because I was in some kind of chronic pain, mm-hmm. right? But there is some, there's a lot of chronic stress mm-hmm. in being in leadership. And then there's all the ways in which you persuade yourself that you deserve certain indulgences. And a lot of your followers encourage you to take those indulgences because mm-hmm. they see the pressure you're under. And they're mm-hmm. like, you should do this. Yeah. You need to go on that vacation. You need to, you know, we should like pay you that thing or it's okay if you cut that corner or, um, or like that person shouldn't have confronted you. You have the right to like undermine them in a way that you wouldn't normally think was totally ethical. 
And that's very tempting because you just want to take a shortcut. You just want to get ahead a little bit. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, for all the sacrifices you make to get very little for it, which is the nature of service, is just not something people are... Mm -hmm. you just go, this isn't fair. I should get more. So I think that I think, and and also like with politicians, they, they often don't even understand what they're doing. They don't read the bills they vote for. They get, they get caught in the speed of what's happening. And they just like, you see this with like, you know, the videos like so-and-so crosses so-and-so and like, like you get these, like, these are hearing like political hearings and you, you can tell the Senator is like reading off the thing his aide gave him. He has no idea what's going on. Yeah. And this is all parties because the thing is just going too fast for anybody to be thoughtful. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of problems with it, yeah. right? And that's why that's why I tend to think smaller, more local, more local accountability, and free exchange is fundamental. Like in the local church, we've got we've got one. Nobody has to come back next Sunday, mm-hmm. right? We are constrained financially and personally and in every way by the quality of what we do. Yeah. Or nobody will come, and that is very hard on me, and for those of us who lead, it is it is, but it's also really healthy, right? You know, because I have checks and balances on me like in two seconds if I step out of line. Yeah. And that's just not the case. The bigger things get. Right. Okay. Um, I took us off track. I will bring us back on track now. Okay. So is there anything more that you want to talk about related to the introduction? To the what? To your, your introduction. The idea that everything yeah. is both spiritual and political. And so we're in right. this. So we're, sp- Yeah. So, Space. so this is the proposition people will have heard on Sunday, and, um, but I think it's impo- I think it's I think it's clear enough to get at something that everything that the church has to be political in this kind of a context has to be political has no choice must be to be faithful and cannot be politicized mm-hmm. must not be and cannot be politicized mm-hmm. and that tension is difficult. Mm-hmm. Okay, because so the minute you get political, the temptation to politicize is high. So why don't you talk a little bit about what that means? Because we've spent a good bit talking about what it means that everything is political. Yeah. So, so the way I would distinguish those two words is to political is Jesus. Jesus cares about everything. God cares about everything. He is king over all things. His kingdom will ultimately reign over all things. And he has, when he sent human beings in the world, he told us to take dominion over his creation. Now, dominion can only have two meanings. Either it's a political meaning in which we rightly order and have lordship over things for its flourishing, or it's a negative term that means that we rape and pillage and destroy for our own use, right? Take dominion to dominate. Mm-hmm. It doesn't mean the latter. I mean, God didn't make a very good creation that was sinless in order to say, now go dominate it. Mm-hmm. He made a very good creation where he, where he was the perfect Lord over it. And he said, now you go and take dominion over creation, meaning for its good. So God told us to human beings that we must take a political position in creation. Mm-hmm. And then Jesus, when he said we were the salt of the earth and the light of the world, he gave that in the context of a life of righteousness publicly among all people, not specifically relative to salvation, though he definitely intended for us to repent and believe. But the Sermon on the Mount's main focus is not like as in Mark 1, repent and believe the kingdom of God is near. The Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 to 7, Jesus is saying, this is what it looks like to live justly. This is what it looks like to live towards Markarias, towards blessedness right towards happiness blessed are the so that's why it starts with the attitudes blessed yeah. are the so-and-sos people who live like this who believe like this who love god this way will live a certain kind of like that's what a disciple is you the, as that disciple publicly as you live in the world are the salt of the earth that is you are the preservative mm-hmm. that's why he says how can the salt lose its salt you have to preserve your integrity as a church right. or you can't preserve the world right and then you're the light of the world don't hide it under a bushel mm. Right, like you, if you're the light, you have to shine. Mm-hmm. You have to let yourself speak into the world the prophetic word of the gospel, and of your life. So, I, I just think if you look at the way the gospel is laid out and the way the, the scriptures are laid out, God is saying you must be, you must act publicly. You must live a social life. You have to exist in the world of all people. You have to do that, right? But politicization is when our politics and our tribe and the side that we're on and the the scorecard of our team really really is driving what's going on mm-hmm. and it's, it's sometimes it's hard to be conscious of this it's really easy to point this out in somebody else harder to see it in yourself but it's kind of like i so if like if i'm a republican i have my little scorecard of what i'm supposed to say and when i read the bible and it really should question one of those things mm-hmm. i i push that verse aside mm-hmm. or i like i reinterpret it to mean something i can't mean and I am I'm, I make it myself able to do that because I'm so committed to my scorecard. 
right? Or my tribe or my whatever. Right. And I, I see this in the church so much. I see this among everybody, like, especially like you go through news stories and it's like just really obvious to me. I mean, obviously I think I'm perfect, right? But I go through <laughs> some of like the big news stories of our time and I'm like, yeah, that one's a ball. That one's a strike. That one's a ball. That one's a strike. And like, oftentimes it's not in accord with my team. You know yeah. what I mean? And, um, I, but I also have seen myself drawn to the temptation to, to not call the ball and strike the way it probably should have been because of my prejudices. Yeah. Right. But like, um, yeah, but you can just see people that are just so committed to a certain way of looking at it. They're not ready to look at it another way. And, um, it's that, that concerns me because once we become politicized, then our political ideology is our idol. Mm-hmm. What do you think? And God is not Lord. Like maybe this feels obvious, but it, as you were saying that, the thought that came to my mind is like, well, what do you think leads someone to get to that point? Is it just enough? Because one of the things you were talking about before mm-hmm. when you said if you don't have a religion and if you don't have this, like, if your identity is not founded in Christ, you're going to find it somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so people will turn to the state as their religion. They won't call it that. But I mean, you mm-hmm. if you're going to belong to a political party, you have your doctrine and mm-hmm. you have your people who are going to accept you mm-hmm. and who are going to love you and who are going to provide for you and who are going to promise to take care of you. And so it becomes right. this, like, is it just the, the continual affirmation of that that leads you yeah. to? Yeah. I mean, one of the reasons why, why people call it tribalism is right. because oftentimes this politicization like fulfills these basic human needs, right? So like the world is complicated and dangerous, right? That's like super fundamental to human psychology, Mm -hmm. right? And so um, politicization makes the world simple. It says, here are the good guys, here are the bad guys. Here are the right answers, here are the wrong answers, Yeah. right? And you're like, okay. And then it provides a clear route to affirmation, right? So a lot of us, we struggle with affirmation because like, are we enough? Are we good enough? Mm-hmm. And the question is, well, how do you find out, right? And maybe your parents yeah. don't shower you with praise, or or it turns out <laughs> this is one of the funniest psychological findings is like if your parents shower you with praise, you'd learn to not trust them, yeah, right? Because because like, well, I'm gonna build up your self esteem. I'm just gonna tell you you're fantastic. Yeah. Well, I tell you you're fantastic actually twelve times, and then somebody else tells you you're not, and you know that they're telling the truth. Yeah. So like, where affirmation is a problematic thing, yeah. but if you really do believe, if you accept that your political ideology is the truth, the true truth. And then, so you believe in it. So then, and then somebody praises you for it. You can accept their affirmation because you really believe it's the true truth and you're on the right side. And then you get affirmed for being on the right side. So you can believe what they're telling you and they will give it to you. Yeah. And And so it solves the problem of affirmation in a pretty deep way as well. This, this relates to when you were saying before about how the evangelical church has gotten weaker when it comes to being able to say both and. Mm-hmm. Like I was thinking about this with Luca who's four and he'll, he'll ask like, if we watch a movie, he likes superhero movies. He's a four year old boy. Yeah. Um, and he'll ask like, why is so-and-so bad? Like why mm-hmm. are they? And, and he wants to understand this. And, and like, we're trying to talk about how, mm-hmm. well, ever no one is really just all a bad guy or a good guy. Mm-hmm. Like they're, everyone's a little bit of both mm-hmm. and maybe more of one than the other, but like it's, it's not an easy, like, it's just a lot easier to just say everybody's only bad or good. And mm-hmm. even a four-year-old wants to be able to sort that out. Yeah. I mean, the the cliche and incredibly beautiful quote relative to that is Solzhenitsyn's, you know, the, the fault line between good and evil runs through every human heart. But the thing that's beautiful about that quote is Solzhenitsyn lived in the gulags. Like, he saw evil yeah. at its worst. He saw the Russian government put people out to work in 50 below zero and they just froze and our were still statues in the permafrost of, you know, the upper Siberian plains. And he could see that evil perpetrated against him, the victim. Yeah. And he still, and still could know. see that no evil runs through all of our hearts right. because he wanted to hate them. Yeah. You know? And yeah. so I, I think, but that's, an, that's another one of those like Christian, that's like, th- th- this is the problem. If God isn't God to you, y- you aren't an atheist. Like the, the, the God whole has a thousand things rushing into it. And, um, you, you have to have an answer of where did I come from? Where am I going? What is meaningful? What is moral? Um, who will affirm me? Am I enough? Like, has my life been worthwhile? Yeah. They're like all these fundamental psychological questions that are these Everybody ideologies. Needs. People, people think that they, they're choosing their ideology because they think it's sort of true. But that's really not what's happening. If it has a psychological function for them, and you can try to be objective as much as you can, 
And I don't think you, we should psychologize everybody's beliefs because you should treat the beliefs as though they are true or false and argue on that basis. But we need to realize like all of these motivations that we have that lead us towards politicization because you can, there's a way to believe in Christianity that's like kind of politicized in an ugly sort of way where you sort of abstract the religious principles and you make it like, it's like a really bad form of fundamentalism where you like, you crump with all these rules and then you like Jesus yeah. is gone. It's a Phariseeism, right? Yeah, Phariseeism yeah, totally. is a politicization through traditional traditionalization mm-hmm. of a belief that would have life in it. That's true, but that you have destroyed by making a second thing, a first thing, like making something that was created to, to not be ultimate and you make it ultimate. Mm. So like if you if, like, if, a, if a, so I like, for example, if a criticism, it says to me, like I'm a political pers- progressive, that's my view politically. Like when I look at what public policies I think will produce the best outcomes, I think progressive ones for the most part will. And so there's two questions I ask them. One is, do you think, do you think that's true all the way down the scorecard? Mm-hmm. Cause that tells me a lot. Mm-hmm. If they say, well, no, like about 80% of the scorecard, but like 20% of it, I think it's just off. And why do you think it's off? Well, cause Jesus says, well, okay, okay. That's a good sign, right? Mm-hmm. If they are, if they go all the way down the scorecard. I am really concerned for them, mm-hmm. right? Right. And then the, the second one is is like, what in your scorecard or what of your tribe's belief does Jesus stand wholly against? Right. And, and you're on his team, not theirs, right? Um, for what will your team lynch you? Yeah. And and if they can't answer that question, I'm concerned. Yeah. Because I know for all the teams I belong to, I know what where I am no are. longer on their team. Yeah. Right. And so I think that that's really important too. And it's like, I am, I am, so let's say, let's say I'm like a uh, progressive Democrat in terms of what I believe, but I'm a Christian, like, and that is above my political view. I am, I am more positive. I like, I, I believe in the spiritual health of somebody who is a Republican for whom their Republicanism is subordinated to the glory of Christ and Christ's mm-hmm. word than I am to my fellow progressive for whom that's clearly not the case. Right. Where they're 100% on the scorecard and Jesus just magically agrees with everything that mm-hmm. their secularist, irreligious party is teaching. Mm-hmm. Right? And I'm like, ah. So I, and I think I think that should function in the church. I think you should be able to go to a church where clearly there are people who believe differently than you politically. Mm-hmm. And you're having politically vibrant conversations, but Jesus is Lord over all of it. And you just, every, yeah. you just feel it. And the right. way people talk, the way they treat each other, mm-hmm. the way they reason through, the way they listen when the other person is actually talking because maybe they've missed something. I think that that should be really obvious. Yeah. And that's why I don't want a politically homogeneous church. Mm-hmm. I think that would be very unhealthy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Is there more that you wanted to say about discerning between political versus politicized? Yeah. Okay. So one way to think about this is, um, so what I have written in one of my drafts for the sermon is, um, it, it might sound hard to, to, to distinguish between political and politicized, but I think once you get the basic concept in, in person, it's really easy to tell the difference. So like one example is if you walk out of the sanctuary and five people are talking about some political question, like how do we close the achievement gap in public schooling? Should we change voter laws in order to make the voting process more just? Should we, should money be diverted from public schools to private schools so that citizens have equal access to the taxation put upon them for the good of their children mm-hmm. and have more choice in how schools are ordered? Um, and so on. You could, there could be a lot yeah. of, should there, should there be taxes on vehicles? I mean, whatever, any question, right. right? And you could listen to the conversation and you should be able to tell pretty quick if this is a politicized conversation or mm-hmm. a political conversation. Is, is everybody, is it clear that everybody's fundamentally committed to Jesus as Lord? And in that context, are pursuing as an investigation, like what might be the best action in truth mm-hmm. while valuing other human beings as Jesus demands they be valued? Yeah. Or it, are people fighting, poking, clear, clearly the politicization, the, the, like your scorecard is more important than the way Jesus says we should behave with mm-hmm. each other. You can usually tell even within the conversation whom in the conversation is having a political conversation under the Lordship of Christ and who has politicized the issue in their mind for whom Christ is now subordinated to their political views and their views about justice. Mm -hmm. Because most people's views about justice are political views. Does that make sense? Yeah. So I I think another is the public speech of Christians. I think a dead giveaway to me is when you're you're ready to harm another person to make your point. Mm. Like when you lose your capacity for charity 
in how you speak about another human being, whether they're Christian or not. I think there's a, it's especially yeah. relevant when the person's a Christian because they're literally your brother and sister spiritually in the body of Christ. Yeah. And if you can't figure that out, I mean, Jesus says you're supposed to love your enemy, but Jesus literally says in first John, if you don't love your brother or sister in Christ, you don't love me. It's like another level yeah. of brokenness. And so if you can't even treat other Christians mm-hmm. with respect when you make your political argument, you are politicized. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's a one where like maybe the distinction is a little bit lost on some people, but in practice, that one's, I think, pretty obvious. Um, I think that um, how we respond to uncomfortable preaching. So like in April, uh, Marcus Allen came to High Point to preach and he preached... I mean, a pretty biblical sermon. And pa- but pastorally, you know, every pastor has to decide how they're going to apply something. Yeah. One of his examples was a little bit more on the left side of things about like how justice in neighborhoods to keep people from being harmed would be like spending money to put up lights and do certain things to improve poor neighborhoods. And people took from that a sense of like entitlement that the federal government or public tax dollars should be used to help poor neighborhoods in ways that may or may not even be helpful. But people responded very di- so. Like the people who were conservative who heard that, different people have responded very differently, right? Mm-hmm. Some people were like, "Okay, I don't really, I don't naturally agree with this. I should listen, mm-hmm. right?" And there were some people who were like, "You know, Marcus had really challenged me." Mm-hmm. I was like, "Well, great." Other people were like, "I don't agree with you, but I listened to what you said before this. I'm listening to what you say now. I'm going to listen to what you said after it. I'm not going to shut you down or shut you out. Mm-hmm. I just on this point, you and I disagree, right? Great, mm-hmm. that's great." Other people were kind of upset for a little bit. Why are you politicizing this? Mm-hmm. And then they got self-reflective enough to be like, oh, well, he, I mean, he has to say something, mm-hmm. right? And that's great. That's Jesus is Lord. Paul, like, you like it calms right. you down, you realize, right? Then there were some people who left the church. Yeah. They were like, well, I guess this church is woke and they don't care about Jesus and blah, blah, blah. And what, what it showed was is that they were woke, like in the, in the worst sense of that term, that they had a political ideology and they think, if you don't believe my ideology, you're lost, you're out, you're blind. Mm-hmm. I think that I'm awake in a way that you couldn't possibly be if you even entertain these notions. Mm-hmm. And so they just left the church and a few people literally sent emails to Marcus's church personally attacking him. Now, those last two categories is like the worst form of politicization I can imagine. It's really, yeah. really awful. And it demonstrates... That like, I, if I sat down with a person like that, I'd be like, look, look, you need to be really careful about whether or not you're a Christian. Because what you have anything but the heart of Christ in this situation. Even if you think that he spoke about a policy that you think the results of would be quite bad. Yeah. You still have to, in a sense, I mean, like, I think Martin Luther King for, I mean, there's some things to criticize Martin Luther King for, but like, he's a founding father in my book. Like, he got that the, the Christian ethic is you must speak and you must do it without violence. Mm-hmm. You must confront the other person but your goal always has to be to win them over by making an appeal to their conscience, even as they attack and harm you. And I think that that's right. I think that that's true, not just like functionally in the civil rights movement as people face dogs and water hoses. I think that's literally true in every single interaction any Christian ever has. And that has to, we have to get that really straight, you know? So I have a couple other examples. Um, oh, like one example is like how people cooperate. So High Point Church with a bunch of other churches through Good Friday and some other places, we raised money for to put a roof on a African-American church that was a smaller church. And um, when I said what church it was, some of the people like went to that church's Facebook page and looked at like some of like the sermons and comments and so on. And a prominent leader at that church had had done like a sermon and made com- very negative comments about President Trump while he was president. Mm-hmm. And... It, it was pretty one-sided. Mm-hmm. You know, like you could argue some of the stuff that person said was true of President Trump and that it was bad, but like you could also very easily come up with examples of Democrats that did the exact same thing and so on. So it was, it was like, it was pretty unbalanced and you'd be pretty attuned to it if you were on the political right. Yeah. And they, and so there's this one guy who came to me and he's like, he's like, Nick, did you, do you happen to notice this? Right. Cause like, she's basically saying I'm a bad person while I'm trying to support her church. Yeah. Like, and it's a little on the nose. And I was like, yep, I saw it, <laughs> but I'm totally aware of it. And, and I said, yeah. so what do you want to do? I was like, do you want to not support the church because this person said that? And the person said, no, I, we should support them. I, th- I, yeah. I just wish that person hadn't said that. And I was like, well, it's probably going to be three or four or 12 years before we have enough of a relationship where you can say that or we can, you know, but, yeah, right. um, but like, uh, so, so this is when I respected, like they, they felt like they had been like mistreated in a way. But they also were like, that doesn't change anything. She's my sister in Christ. We're in this together. 
the growth of the gospel is the most important thing. I want to be generous towards them. Like all those, all the Christian commitments stayed in place and forgiveness flowed. Yeah. But they still felt attacked because they had a certain political view, but because their political view wasn't politicized, it hadn't become a God. Mm-hmm. Jesus was still God and he ordered things yeah. properly. And so we were generous. He loves them. They love him. I mean, like right. it all worked. Does that right. make sense? Yeah. And Jesus can make that possible, but politicization will never make that possible. Yeah. It'll drive us apart and cause us to hate each other. So I, I've got a bunch more, but I, does that, I think that makes it clear. Mm-hmm. Are there any others that you feel like you're not going to have the time to cover it on Sunday? One of the things I thought about was just like examples of what it would be like to be positively political. You know what I mean? Yeah. So, because I think people would be like, um, well, okay, Nick, do you just mean that like we should all get involved in like these like voter drives or like, like, what do you mean? And yeah. and what I, I, th- I think it'd be good for Christians to get involved in like supporting candidates and voter, I, like all that stuff. Yes. I think Christians should be politically involved to the extent they want to be. There's lots of things to be involved in. I think political things are legitimate things to be involved yeah. in. Right. I, I did not, I learned this recently and I actually can't remember who it was, but it was, uh, some church. Was this where they had the, um, what was the, No. Bonhoeffer had that house thing, but I don't think this was his. But there was some church where, like, the elder board was also the town board. Oh, Geneva? Is Geneva that, Reformation? Is it Geneva That may well Reformation? have been that, yeah. Yeah. Bob Grauman, that's who it was. He was telling me that. And oh, I that was probably that. Geneva, yeah. Okay, yeah. Right, that, like, they were heavily involved in their church, and then they also were heavily involved in their community in these other ways. Yeah. That's what makes me think. Anyway, go on. Yeah, that's a really interesting case. We uh, but anyway, yeah, so yeah. let me give you a couple examples, like just right here in Madison in yeah. the last five years, okay? So one is, there's a pastor I know who I won't name, who um, was really concerned about gender ideology and how it was affecting kids in his church through the public school system. And so instead of be- creating a public campaign against them, he volunteered in the classrooms. Mm-hmm. And by volunteering in the classrooms, he got to spend time with kids, he got to help kids read, he got to do like positive things in his community's public school. He also was privy to what they were doing in terms of gender ideology. Yeah. And he did find that it was very troubling, that it was bullying and that it was completely developmentally inappropriate. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, so you see, and then he had to decide what to do. Right. But you see, then he'd already started to create some relationships. Mm-hmm. So the teacher there, she, she knew that he cared about the kids and wanted to help. He, he wasn't just against her. Yeah. So now he was going to be like, do you think you have to say it quite that way? Or, do you know what I mean? He, right. There's a little bit different. So, so there's a situation where he waited to find out. He didn't bear false testimony against his neighbor. He went and found out what was really happening. Yeah. He did it in a way that was constructive. And he like learned and planned how to respond positively so that he can then figure out what to do if he's going to do something, right? Lloyd Biddle is another example. Yeah. Um, he cares about, he cares a lot about the um, achievement gap. Mm-hmm. And so before he was just kind of like, here's the policies everybody should be after. He organized people before and he personally went yes. every week to a school and read with kids mm-hmm. he participated in what was going on in school and he tried to learn personally by serving others what was going on mm-hmm. so that he could increasingly believe certain things and say certain things publicly about what he thought should be done right does that make sense but that but he was getting involved and like everybody thinks that achievement gap in madison is like a political issue like people are interacting with it in highly politicized ways and yet these two christians in particular like they went in and learned and did right um, and then uh, Lloyd's wife was uh, Debbie was eventually on the board. Yeah, I have her on here. Yeah, oh, yeah. So yeah, so mm-hmm. Debbie Biddle is another example of somebody who she was doing a lot of work in inclusion outside of this, the school system. Mm-hmm. She felt like there could be improvement on that in the Verona school system. She ran for the school board. She was elected, mm-hmm. and she served on the school board. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's another woman I've met recently who's a who uh, started living in a town fairly nearby here. Mm-hmm. She got involved with the with commerce in the area bring businesses to the area and then as that kind of waned out she had the opportunity to run to get on the school board and she did and um and she's the only christian on the school board Mm -hmm. this town you would think would be relatively conservative because it's kind of out a little ways but it's not right it's and there's more madison people moving there all the time it's become very progressive in certain ways and in some of the worst ways sadly and um she's just kind of like look and she's like making an argument for things that are true and better for kids and trying to keep some of the allowing certain progressive things that are like meant to be helpful while trying to keep some of the totalitarian, the more like the more yeah. like domineering yeah. aspects of it out of the school yeah. and trying to get a, like a, a proper allowing this, the, the institution to be truly liberal. Mm-hmm. 
and have that is full of liberality towards everybody as right. opposed to right. totalitarian one way or another. Right. And I think, and she's paying a price for it. I mean, she gets yelled at at meetings. People mm-hmm. say all kinds of nasty things to her, but um, she is the salt of the earth. Right. You know, um, I think of Harold Rayford who became a librarian at um, the Sun Prairie School District to be an African-American um, staff member and then to help work in that school system towards better policies, towards, um, and one of the things that happened like uh, some years ago, there was this thing about how African-American kids were getting expelled and given detention in school suspension at higher rates. And one of the first things I did was I talked to him. I was like, Harold, yeah. what do you think about this disciplinary imbalance? And his response to me was, he's like, Nick, I'm a librarian. I'm in school literally every single day. He's like, there's, that is a necessity. Uh, he said, sadly, our kids are, are, are very disruptive and are doing a lot of stuff. And I've, I've watched, and, and, I, he, and here's the thing. He was brought in by the principal in disciplinary cases. The, the, the principal would say, Harold, would you come to my office? And he'd say, here's what's going on. Should I yeah. kick this guy, kid out of school for three or four days? And Harold would be, absolutely. Yeah. You know, he, like, because, and, and, but there are some times where he'd be like, well, let's, can we try this? Let's try this with that student. Can I meet with that student? So here's a guy who like, instead of being like, you know, swinging things and like out in public, like, you know, Sun Prairie is the most racist place in the world. Instead, he like, he got involved in the school district. He was employed there. He like embedded himself in things and he did mm-hmm. things as redemptively as he could. Does that make sense? Was this while he was pastoring? Oh yeah. I didn't know that he also had this job. Oh yeah. And he was on like four boards. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's one of the reasons why our church invested money in trying to help him to go to full time right. was because he was getting pulled in so many directions Yeah, because the, the. You know, the fire department wanted his help for policy-wise. The police department wanted his help. The mayor's office wanted his yeah. help. The banking system wanted his help. Yeah. And then the school wanted his help. And then his church needed him. And it was... A lot. Yeah. yeah. So one of the ways that our church tried to affect things politically in Madison was we supported Harold as he became full-time at his church so that his work in advocating for Christ in the community as an African-American man that people would actually listen to mm-hmm. was maximized dramatically. So he, right. he got a bigger platform because we supported him. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Another person would be Gwen Trader. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Gwen uh, was a teacher and she understands the school system in over, uh, for a number but of also issues. Just to, Gwen is our kids director, right. our kids ministry yeah. director. She's our Gwen Trader. And so like a number of times she has taken stuff all the way to the school board superintendent right. in her schools. But she, but she has like, she's interacted with them over things in the school system. She actually reads the emails. She's gone and read the curriculums. Yeah. And then she'll go in and she'll be like, listen, listen, this is very inappropriate. This is developmentally inappropriate. You, you can't be doing this with students. This, this, because one of the things that's going on in school boards right now is what's called the welcoming schools, which is a LGBTQ advocacy campaign for, um, to help, to try to protect trans students. And, mm-hmm. the, and it's put forth as an anti-bullying campaign. What has actually happened over the last several years is that it's become an adult-led bullying campaign. And it's really sad the way yeah. it's the way it's in, instead of becoming a mechanism by which truly trans kids like kids that have gender dysphoria and ge- kids have very strong same sex attraction in the process of puberty and sexualization are protected at the, at the ages of like 11, 12, 13 or so on. Um, what's actually happened is nine year old girls are being told that they're lesbians because they prefer playing with girls at the age of nine before they've even entered into hormonal sexualization. It's it's the most developmentally inappropriate thing you could possibly imagine. Mm-hmm. But here's the thing. Ideology knows no bounds, right? Like if you yeah. don't start with teleology, how do little girls develop hormonally sexually? Right. And you start with um, you're born gay or you're born trans. Therefore, there, sh- there must be elements of it and signs of it when you're nine. And so therefore, and it's better that she thinks she might be trans or she might be a lesbian so that when she figures out she's not a lesbian, she'll be really open to lesbians and like mm-hmm. really loving towards them. That kind of like kind of twisted moral ideology. Like, I, like I, I'm willing to argue that the, that these folks are, are doing right as they know how, but I am also willing to say that it's abominable and detestable and it's in the way it's turned out to be like, it's one thing to say, like, it's one thing to know that kids bully other kids in school. It's another thing to turn right. teachers and adults into a class of bullies right. who utilize other kids to bully another minority of kids. And it's like, you, it's, it's like you're trying to turn around some kids from being bullied in their core beliefs about themselves, like their gender and their ideology about their sex to other kids who are being bullied about their core identity. That is their belief in God, the belief in what they are as a human being that's rooted in their religious faith. So like, it's horrible. And so, I mean, there's a lot of people who are really mad about it. What Gwen has actually done about it mm-hmm. is she has like, written to the school board. 
She's gone in and talked to teachers. She's tried to like advocate for her for changes in some of the curriculum policy stuff. Mm-hmm. Like for example, one of the schools that her kids went to wasn't a welcoming school yet. They hadn't adopted that policy set, but they had started doing some of the stuff. The principal didn't even know it was happening. Yeah. So she went to that school and she's like, listen, we don't have this curriculum. We're not supposed to be doing this ideology. It's being run as a pilot program in other schools. You sh- we shouldn't be doing piloted things here when the pilot system isn't done yet. Like just basic, straightforward advocacy. And, right. um. I, th- I mean, I, I think she, and she does a really good job and she doesn't yell and scream at people, but she, it's kind it's like, it's like Martin Luther King. She says her piece and she takes her punches yeah. and she doesn't dehumanize the other person, but she doesn't back down at all in the face of injustice. She, she is clear minded about it. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so, but yeah, I think when we, one of the first people, like if they were like some kind of conservative religious group, even, even if they were Christians in our public schools, bullying trans kids. I think one would be right up there with everybody else being like, you cannot do this. Right. Because she, she, she's capable because she's not politicized. Right. She can, in Christ's name, call balls and strikes. Right. So um, High Point Church suing the state in state, the state Supreme Court to keep our school open. Mm-hmm. That wasn't a question of the gospel of Christ in that, like, they wanted us to hate Jesus. It was, we believed that they, that the state was holding a false anthropology. They thought that kids developmentally would be just fine if they didn't see each other for a year and didn't go to school for a year and they could learn digitally just as well as anywhere else. We knew that was false. We knew in our bones it was false. And so we fought it and we won and we proved that you could do school and you could do school right. safely and kids could learn and they would do better. And, and it was those kinds of actions of schools like ours that actually put pressure on the public schools to reopen. And um, that pressure still exists now and parents are like really upset that the schools have tried to reclose again. Right. And I think that that was a, that was a political action on our part that we prayed about whether or not we were being politicized. I like I prayed about that a good bit. I was like, Lord, is this a I am so frustrated at the public schools and I want them to look stupid? Or is this about what I think is best for children? Because no research was out yet. This was a gut yeah, call. Yeah, that's right. And it wasn't till the but it was because our schools were open and other Christians did some of these same things and kept schools open that then there was data the next year about like how some kids fell behind and some kids didn't, how some kids were harmed by this and how some other kids weren't. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. And so be- because we did that, we could say, here's what happened. And that was something we, that was, that we, it couldn't be driven by science at that point because there wasn't sufficient science. It had to be driven by our convictions about what human beings were, how kids developed and so on. And that was a, in that sense, quote, political decision. Because of that, some of our elders struggled. They were like, should we fight the government? We're supposed to obey right. the government. Should we fight the government? I was like, listen, fighting the government in court is obeying the government. Yeah, right. Yes. So... We, yeah. we are allowed to do this. Yeah. Um, and, but should we? And like we risked money and we risked yeah. a good bit. And it was the first time. I, it was the only thing. Like of all the COVID stuff that I was like, ah, I obeyed the government, all that stuff. Except for this one thing. I was like, look, we have to fight this. Yeah. This is, this is the place where we have to take a stand because it's dehumanizing. And it's not just hurtful. It's harmful. It's not just a hurt that people get over. It's a harm that can't be undone. And so we have to do something. So... Man, I could give you a whole bunch more examples, yeah. but for me, those are like, those are examples of people saying in the name of Jesus, because Jesus claims all of creation, how do I engage it within the world in a way that rejects idolatry, that rejects sin, that rejects injustice and rejects violence. And that I don't become a perpetrator of a new ideal, a new idolatry, a new sin, a new injustice or a new violence in trying to get what I want. And I think if we do that, we will say no to the worst of the left. We'll say no to the worst of the right. We'll be able to call balls and strikes. We'll be able to look at the Michael Michael Brown's death and say that was really tragic, but that police officer had to do that. We'll look at George Floyd's death and we'll go, that was really tragic, and that police officer did not have proper regard for his life. We'll be able to, like, instead of calling ideologically, we'll be able to look at the thing, look at the facts, and be able to make a moral call and say this and that. We'll be able to not dehumanize our enemies or our detractors. We'll be able to love Christians who vote differently than us. Mm-hmm. In, in a lot of cases, it's going to be people of different ethnicities. So we can't bring the church together multiracially unless we can get past this politicization. Right. So, I mean, if uh, if a predominantly white church is going to have a loving relationship with a predominantly black church, they're going to have to accept about each other that they vote for different candidates. Right. Yeah. Um, and that's just the way it is. And so we have to do that. So there's so many things in which this becomes a rubber hits the road kind of thing. Absolutely. And, it, there, and there's just no way that you're going to do this. If you can't do this in the big things... You won't do it in the little things either. And to have the strength to do it in the big things, you should start doing it in the little things. Yeah. So this starts with that other Christian at High Point Church that you know believes different from you politically. Do you really listen when they talk? Do you treat them with absolute humanity? Do you think of them? Do you really judge them and think of them less because they have a different belief on what the best policies would be about 
for our country, even if you believe some of their beliefs are dangerous because you think they'll lead to bad outcomes? Do you believe they believe them in good faith? Do you believe that, you know, like, like that kind of like, how do you treat people right. who are substantially different from you? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. when Jesus said to love our enemies, he did not think it was going to be, he didn't say unless it's hard. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like he knew that it would be so hard, but it is, it is in the difficulties of that, that we become, that we grow, that we like really learn how to love people. And we just, we can't, we, you have to let yourself face these tests because otherwise you can't really become loving in the sense of like a martyr, like the, the heart of Christ. You're really just playing around with affection. You're not really learning to be a person of love. And I think this area of politicization has to get sorted out if we're going to pursue justice together. Because otherwise we'll be easily manipulated. We won't be able to work with people. We, I mean, just like everything breaks down that could lead to health or reform or something better. Mm-hmm. And we say we don't want the status quo, but if we just, if we stay gridlocked, we're going to get the status quo or something worse. That's what always happens. Right? Only if people arise above the natural nature of the flesh and we grow in Christ and we pursue with all the costs to ourselves, um, facing opposition and sacrificing, but speaking the truth prophetically in love, can reform happen and life can be brought in and corruption pushed out of the structures and systems of our lives so that there can be renewal that accompanies revival. Mm-hmm. And so I just, I think that, I think that Christians, if we're going to learn to talk about justice, well, we have to understand the dynamics of that the church must be political, but it cannot be, it cannot be politicized. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Engage and Equip podcast. If you have a podcast idea or a question you'd like answered on the podcast, send us an email at podcast at highpointchurch.org. If you'd like to find more episodes, you can go online to highpointchurch.org slash podcast. You can also find us on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, and other apps like those. We hope this episode was helpful to you as you grow in becoming a more substantive disciple and part of the local church. If this episode was helpful to you, rate or review us on Apple Podcasts or share this episode with a friend. Those are some of the best ways we have to reach new listeners. Until next time, thank you for listening to this episode of Engage and Equip.